Um, if you want to open your Bibles up to Deuteronomy chapter 32, that's where we are as we draw our study to the book of Deuteronomy near the end, um, chapter 32. We're going to look at the song of Moses that's contained in chapter 32. Song is this extraordinarily powerful vehicle to convey truth. Um, in part, because songs are so enduring, some songs are passed from generation to, to generation to generation. We live in a day when the shelf life of a song is pretty short, but that's not always been the case, nor is it the case with all of our songs. Let me give you an example. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run. See how they, it gets gory at this point. I'll warn you, it gets a little scary. You know, they, uh, let's see, let's get it right. Um, they all ran after the farmer's wife who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Have you ever seen such a sight in your life as three blind mice, right? You know how many years we've sang that song? 400 years. It was written in 1609, as far as we know, or earlier. We've, I have no idea why we've been singing that song. But it has haunted us for 400 years. Songs are like that. They get in your head, you cannot get them out, and they are passed down from generation to generation. This is why we still remember those sorry lyrics from 70s rock songs. Okay? For instance, wasting away in, looking for my lost... Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should all be ashamed of yourself. That's right. See, song lyrics follow you long after you wish they would, don't they? For, for better or for worse. Um, song is powerful for that reason. Song is also powerful because it's an amazing vehicle for the memorable telling of stories. We know stories that we otherwise would not know simply because they've been told in song. Here's an example. Listen to my story about a man named Jed Poor mountaineer barely kept his family fed And then one day he was shooting at some food And up through the ground come a bubbling crude oil Exactly. Everybody, everybody, unless you're like a 20-something and then you have no idea what just happened, everybody knows, everybody knows Jed's story. Right? The Ballad of Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillberries. He's this poor mountaineer guy, can barely keep his family fed. He goes out to shoot some food, and up come bubbling from the ground some crude. All right? And it goes like this. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Kinfolk said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck, and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Right? Swimming pools, movie star. Exactly. <laughs> Now, why do we know Jed's story? 
Because it's in that goofy song, okay? You can't get it out of your head. You'll be, the rest of the day, you'll be tapping your toe, humming that song. That's right. You're welcome. <laughs> song is a, also a powerful way to convey a message. It, because of those things that we just talked about, it, it powerfully brings a message to us. And the church has wisely embraced this from things as simple as Jesus loves me, this I know, to some of the great hymns of the faith. For instance, consider the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Now, those are lyrics that convey a message. That's like a short course in theology. You might get credit for just singing that song down at the seminary. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is going to take all the strengths of song. He's going to wrap it in this lengthy, detailed song of chapter 32 to rescue God's people from their sin. That's the purpose of this song. And if you are here today, and you've just kind of wandered in, and, and you know that you've been mired and snared in sin, then you are here to hear the words of this song so you can find your way back to God. That's why you're here. That's why this song was sung and continues to be sung to this day. It is a song, as Daniel alluded to, that was commanded by God for Moses to write. We saw this last week in chapter 31, um, starting in verse 19. It says, Now therefore, Moses, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know that they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song that same day and taught it to the people of Israel. So the song is intended to be a witness against God's people who have been wayward. They've wandered off from God, and the song is a call back. Okay? It is, it's, a, it's a call to repent and return to God. Um, it is a song that we may well sing eternally. It's interesting, in Revelation 15, Way at the back end of the Bible, as it looks in one of those heavenly views, it says this. It says, I saw what happened to be a, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. 
and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. Moses wrote a couple of songs, this being one of them. This may very well be one of the songs that we will sing in eternity. This very song. So, let's pray and open up the song of Moses together. God, I pray now that my teaching may drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. Father, I intend to proclaim your name, the name of the Lord, and ascribe greatness to you, our God. Grant us ears to hear your song. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you could kind of outline the song and the way the verses unfold or the content unfold, it roughly goes like this. We're going to see what God is like and what we are like, what God has done and how we respond to that, and then how God responds to our response, and there's kind of a surprise finale, a surprise twist at the end of the song. So first, first what Moses does starting in verse 3, as he shows us what God is like in an amazingly dense and short portrait of God. He says in verse 3, I will proclaim proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Foundationally, this song exalts God as great. That's Moses' bedrock for for his song. That's the chorus that he doesn't want us to forget. It's important to grasp because what's about to unfold in the song and in their lives, it may not seem like God is like this. But the message of the song must prevail over their circumstances. So, verse 4 is this incredible portrait of God. He is... Rock, perfect, justice, faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright. That would be a fantastic verse to memorize this week. I intend to memorize it. I'm probably the most memory-challenged person in the church. I'm going to memorize this verse. So let me challenge you and your families to memorize verse 4. I'm working out what you're reading is the ESV, the English Standard Version, if you'd like to use that. Having laid that foundation of what God is like, okay, the rock, now he sings a contrast, Moses does. The song moves from what God is like to what we are like. And when the song talks about Israel, it's talking about the people of God, I'm just going to insert us in there because that's where we fit in the song. We are God's people. We are like Israel. And so I'm just going to run quickly many times from what he says in the psalm directly to to us this day. So in verse 5 and 6, he describes what, what we are like as we look at what they have done. They, that is Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so you have this intentional, vivid contrast. He is perfect. He has absolute integrity. We, however, deal corruptly with him. 
He is upright. We are crooked and twisted. He is the rock of faithfulness. We repay with faithlessness. Okay. It's a vivid, vivid contrast between the God who is the rock and we who are a crooked and twisted people. There's a movie. Um, my daughter just watched it in one of her classes at school. It's called Rudy. Okay. It's a, a classic uh, football movie of sorts. About a boy who desperately wants to play Notre Dame football and doesn't have any chance of doing it. He enrolls in a nearby junior college to work his way in academically, does everything he can to get on this team. And in one scene, he's sitting there with the priest of that, of that junior college having a conversation about what he needs to do to get into Notre Dame and fulfill his dream. And the priest says in the context of that conversation, he says, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. One, there is a God. Two, I'm not him. Okay. That's exactly what Moses is saying. There is a God, and we are not him. Okay. There is a God. He's a rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. And we are not him. In fact, we have betrayed him. We have betrayed our father who made us. And Moses says in verse 6 that this is wildly inappropriate. Do you thus repay the Lord, he says? You foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Did you ever dishonor your father? Did you ever dishonor your father with intentionality? Um, I did. As a smart-mouthed, know-it-all teenager, I remember the place and the time and the words I said and the expression on my dad's face when I said it, and I hate it. Okay. Wish I could take those words back. Moses grabs that image of tragic betrayal and he holds it up to our Heavenly Father, the one who made us. And he sings this rhetorical question to us. Maybe, maybe he sings it more at us. He says, this is how you repay the Lord your Father? And he does it so we'll grasp how wildly wrong our rebellion is. A rebellion against the same one Jesus said far exceed our earthly father's abilities to give us good gifts. Okay. Our heavenly father gives us much more. And that refrain, those memories haunt far worse than some teenage betrayal of our earthly father's love. At least it ought to haunt us. That we have betrayed our Heavenly Father. Well, the song burns this into our memories. What our God is like. And what we are like. And he moves on and he sings now about what God has done for us. How he has cared for us. Look at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your Father. He'll show you. Your elders, they'll tell you. And when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, 
when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock and curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats and the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. It's a picture, you can sense it through the imagery, of God's lavish care for his people. Okay. Of all the nations, Jacob, that's, that's Israel, is his own portion, his own heritage. They, they, Moses says, were the apple of his eye. It's a song lyric that we still use to this day in our language. And they were a mess when he found them. They were, they were like someone lost in the desert and God swooped them up and cared for them like an eagle's wings. And they had produce and honey and oil and curds and milk and fat and wine. And it's a portrait of lavish, abundant care. We might say it's the good life. Okay? Take special note of, of verse 12. It says, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. This was God's care for his people. God did all this. No other. He cared for them. Take just a minute and call to mind how God has cared for you. Think of a time when he protected you. When he rescued you. When he provided for you, when he healed you, when he lavished good gifts on you, a time of laughter, of celebration, maybe remember your baptism, remember your salvation, remember that day? Moses has, with the words of the song, fixed in the people's minds and ours how, how lavishly and undeservedly God has cared for us. Then he sings about our response to that. Verse 15, but Jeshurun, that's another name for Israel, for God's people, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him, and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So they are... We, we might say they were fat and happy on the care of God for them. And then they forsook him. They, they scoffed at him and pursued other gods, gods who had not delivered them. And those words in that last verse, verse 18, 
you were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Unmindful. Forgetful. It's almost like this unintentional, gentle slope that leads us away from God. We're just too busy. We're just uninterested. We're just preoccupied. Over and over again, Deuteronomy warns us about this kind of forgetfulness. Back in chapter 8, especially, it says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Hosea, the prophet, would put it succinctly and chillingly. He says, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. Now, I'm going to share with you one of the great spiritual secrets um, that I know. Um, you might want to write this down. Okay? One of the great protections against forgetting is remembering. Okay? Got that? Let me say that again for you. One of the great spiritual protections against forgetting is remembering. Okay? And the way you remember worshipfully is to give thanks, to daily give thanks. Do you have a pattern in your life and in your home of giving thanks daily? Maybe it's around the dinner table. Maybe it's as you lay your head down each night. But do you have an unskippable practice of giving thanks to God? Forgiveness or excuse me, forgetfulness, stalks you like a lion. It is one of our adversary's great tools. I like the way Rick Warren put it. He says, envy is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. Are you ignoring God's goodness to you? To forget our God and His care for us is dangerous, and it's the height of foolishness. We are like one of the South African intruders in this article I ran across. Nine guys, this is a true story, nine guys break into a home in South Africa, right? The homeowner is home. And then when they realize that, he chases off eight of the nine. The ninth intruder he catches out back by the swimming pool. And he knocks him into the pool. He realizes, he looks in the pool, and he sees the guy flailing around the pool. He realizes that he can't swim and he's about to drown. So the homeowner jumps in the pool and rescues the intruder, pulls him out. What does the intruder do? He pulls a knife on the guy who just rescued him. Okay. What does the guy who just rescued him do? He knocks him back in the pool. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. This is what he says. It's fascinating. The homeowner says, uh, we were still standing near the pool when I saw the knife. I just threw him back in. 
but he was gasping for air and was drowning, so I rescued him again. He says, I thought he had a cheek. It's an expression that means unbelievably proud and rude. Trying to stab me after I had just saved his life. Now, tragically, that's our story. We wrong God. He knocks us in the pool. We cry out for help. He rescues us. We wrong him again. He knocks us back in the pool. It's this cycle. This is our story of how we respond to the loving care and rescue of God for us. Tragically. Moses now, as he closes out the song, he turns to focus on how God responds to us when we forget him. Verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters, and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains." And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young men and women alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. Wow. That is an unbearable weight. When God spurns his people, when they forget him, when he turns his face away, he withholds his favor. And beyond that, in jealous anger, he heaps disasters upon them, arrows, hunger, plague, pestilence, beasts, venom, outdoors, indoors, upon the the young man and the woman, the young child and the old man. God's chastisement of his people is strong. You don't want God to throw you back in the pool. You don't want to live a day outside of God's favor because outside of his favor lies his judgment. This is the curses all over again. The divine discipline of God upon his people in order to turn them back to him. Don't miss that. It's in order to turn his people back to them. That's always the hope. Deuteronomy 4, when we read it, made the pattern explicit, okay? Verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, from that place, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. 
He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. He keeps pulling you out, okay? Keeps rescuing you. And this is really the surprise ending of the song. That God's mercy triumphs over deserved judgment. Look at verse 26. Skip down to verse 26. I would have said, God says, I will cut them to pieces. I'll wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy. Lest their adversaries should misunderstand. Lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. So protect, to protect his reputation amongst the nations, God stays his wrath, his deserved wrath against his people. And he spares them. And if we had time to read the entirety of the song, he turns that wrath against their enemies. And down in verse 36 then it says, The Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. So at the end of the song, God comes in compassion and he vindicates his people, his wayward people. He has compassion on them, though they have been unfaithful. But it's not till they get to the end of themselves and turn back to him, it seems. When, he says, he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, then God rescues. By his great rescue of his undeserving ones, he shows himself to be the one and only true God. Look at verse 39. See now that I, even I, God says, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Judgment and restoration are his work, and his work alone. See, what we hear in this song is the story of God's people unfolding. When they go into the land, they were going to stray from God. They were going to, when he blessed them, they would turn from him, and then he would judge them and call them back. This is not just the story of an incident, isolated incident in the promised land after this song was sung. This is the story of the whole Old Testament until God's rescue ultimately comes in the person of Jesus, and he delivers his people. He delivers us from our sin. Jesus makes the way back for us. When we confess and forsake the sins that have ensnared us because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection on our behalf, we can be restored to the Father. Paul said in Romans 5, as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, this is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. By Christ's obedience, we are made straight. We are made righteous. We are restored to the Father. So remember the song. Don't forget the song. It's God's protection for you. It's his reconciling word to you. It's, it's his reaching out to bring you back. 
Moses closes with these words in 46 and 47 saying, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you but your very life. Let's bow in prayer together. This is a prayer that's been prayed for hundreds of years. Blessed Lord Jesus, before your cross, we kneel and see the heinousness of our sin, our iniquity that caused you to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show us the enormity of our guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Your blood is the blood of incarnate God, its worth infinite, its value beyond all thought. How infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Yet, your compassions yearn over us. Your heart hastens to our rescue. Your love endured our curse. Your mercy bore our deserved stripes. Let us walk humbly in the lowest depths of humility, bathed in your blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as heirs of salvation. Father, may this song call us back to you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Rescues us in Christ. <laughs>